Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Monday, June 22nd. We begin with the crowning of our winning community champion. We surprised the Cron family with a $350 co-op gift card for the good deeds they have done to help out their neighbors during the pandemic and hear how they plan on using their winnings to celebrate new graduates this weekend in their community. Next, we hear the disturbing details on the prevalence of online extremists in our nation. We speak with a researcher from the Institute of Strategic Dialogue who breaks down the types and the large numbers. Do you have people in your life who are possibly racist and get defensive when you bring the topic up? We get advice from a psychologist on what the best approach is to open up the conversation in the most effective manner. Then we hear details on the importance of physical activity when it comes to fighting off cancer. Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician, shares the results of a newly released study which takes aims at the negative effects of a sedentary lifestyle. And finally, a lot going on stateside over the past several days, from the much-talked-about presidential rally in Oklahoma over the weekend to rising COVID-19 cases. We catch up with Reggie Cicchini, Global News Washington correspondent, for the latest. 909, and it's the morning news with Sue Diel. My name is Andrew Schultz, and I believe we've got a very special guest on the line. Mark, are you there? I am here. Hi. Good. Good. You're Mark Cron, is that correct? I am, yes. Do you have any idea why Sudiel and myself are, are calling you this morning? Well, you know, <laughs> our lovely neighbor, Amy Veldhuen, had nominated us for a uh, for the community leader or the community champion mm-hmm. a, a while back. And um, so I'm, I'm maybe a thinking it might have something to do with that. Look at you, Mark. You are on it for sure. <laughs> yes. We wanted to say congratulations and thank you so much to you and your lovely wife, Jenny, and your daughters, Brianna, Sarah, Katie, and Chelsea, apparently going so far above and beyond through this pandemic that you helped not just, you know, one senior couple in your neighborhood, but the whole neighborhood itself. So congratulations. Big round of applause to you guys. Thank you. For thank being you very much. Great community champions. Why did you and your wife and your daughters take this on? Why was it so important to you? Well, you know what? We we are big believers in uh, being very community-focused, and uh, we live in this amazing community, and we've talked to our friends about the kind of neighbors that, that or the kind of neighborhood that, that they have, and many people, I think, in, you know, these days don't necessarily know their, their neighbors that well. And we moved in here 12 years ago, and uh, we, we, we entered a culture that was very much looking out for for one another. Love it. And and we, we wanted to just carry that on. And so it's been a big part of our culture here in this in this neighborhood. So I'm wondering, uh, Mark, as a parent myself with kids, I have a hard time sometimes getting them motivated, getting them <laughs> to step away from the iPod or just, you know, yeah. lounge around. How do you get Brianna, Sarah, Katie, and Chelsea, uh, how have you instilled uh, community, uh, you know, uh, responsibility to, to your girls? Well, you know what? I think it starts with us as the adults to kind of set the set the tone. And and I totally hear you with some of the challenges in technology and different focuses. But I think, you know, like when it snows, I get out there with my shovel and I've got shovels for the girls and away we go and we start shoveling neighbors' walks and and we kind of try to make it fun, you know, like this is not just some kind of a chore, but you know, it's it's me being out it's it's Jenny and I being out there first. And then the kids recognize, oh, okay, now I understand what we're doing here. And so we try to make it fun, and we try to, 
you know, have it be, hey, listen, we're trying to help people and, and make this community a, a better place. Well, so that's, that's kind of been our focus. Clearly you've done it because, as you said, Amy, your neighbor nominated you and the family and said that, you know, there's a senior couple that you walk their dog, your family walks their dog for them. You've created an email list to make sure that everybody in the neighborhood got taken care of when they needed groceries or yard work or whatever it might be. So you guys have done an incredible job and, and good on you for instilling that and your kids we have something for you to say thank you for being so great and and being wonderful members of the community our 770 chqr community cruiser team has dropped off a little something for you at your front door it's out there waiting for you right now if you want to go grab it i'll go see what's happening there you have a cordless phone I am, yes. Okay. Yes. Well, I if guess you had a, not, cor- a phone on a cord, it's not we'd 1977, be back. I guess. <laughs> base any roller stop in the, the charts. Aren't, aren't barking yet? If there's somebody here. Oh, well, they're like ninjas. They're, they're very, stealthy. yeah, they're, they're very, very stealthy. Quiet? Yeah, they oh, okay. are. Okay. Yeah, so they've dropped off a little something, and, and oh, that's awesome. They're here. That's awesome. <laughs> are they waving at you? They are, and Amy's here too. Oh my word! Your neighbor hey. Amy is there. Oh my word! <laughs> <laughs> the whole neighborhood's here. <laughs> what? That is, that is awesome. That is so awesome. The yeah. whole neighborhood is here. This is incredible. Thank you so much. Well, obviously, they are very grateful for all you and your family have done, as are Aww. we. So uh, we've dropped off for you a $350 co-op gift certificate. I'm Thank sure you. with six in the family, you could use uh, some grocery help, no doubt. And the dog, well, apparently. And the dogs. Yeah, so so if- I'm going to tell you, here's what's actually going to happen. On Friday night, my we have Brianna is in grade 12, mm-hmm. and we, of course, with graduation this year, it is uh, a very odd year for all of the grade 12s, mm-hmm. right? So on Friday night, we are having a little grad party on our street. And so thanks to you guys and the $350, we have some lovely food that will be offered back to our lovely community awesome. as we celebrate Brianna. So there we go. Isn't that perfect that you would share it with the community? It seems uh, seems absolutely just like you've done right through the entire pandemic, Mark. Oh, well, thank you guys so much. This is super special. And I can't believe that... Amy, you pulled this all off. <laughs> that is so cool. That Excellent. is awesome. So thank you. Well, really appreciate it's it. It's the least we can do with our partners, again, from Calgary Co-op and uh, Boest Appliances, who power the uh, community cruiser. Thank you so much, and uh, congratulations. Keep doing what you do, Mark and family. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's Mark Cron. He and his wife, Jenny, their daughters, Brianna, Sarah, Katie, and Chelsea, nominated as our community champions. So many great champions. Wish we could award them all. Yeah. Every story that we were able to read on air and the dozens and dozens of other ones that we didn't get the chance to read on air. We had so many sent in to us. We thank you all for nominating all the great people in the city of Calgary that have done such wonderful things for each other through this time. Well, what we're going to do, Sue, I think the boss is out of town, uh, you and I have decided that we're going to extend community champions. Okay, Let's do we, that. We had our grand prize winner, but we want to share the stories because as we started uh, four weeks back uh, indicating one winner, but the recognition is something that if we can help out and uh, shine the spotlight on somebody who's gone above and beyond, it's the least we can do in the stories. We, you know, we only visited 12 of the stories, just incredible, each one after the other. And then you hear from the Cron family that he's won $350 from Calgary Co-op. And he's going to throw a party for the neighborhood. you got to love it. Although, selfishly, as a dad who has to have a a graduation party, I would have been like, this is the greatest day of my life because, (laughs) you know, I get to go to Co-op and get the cakes and get the uh, pastries and chips, have a great time. Love it. So if you have a community champion in your area, someone that you have thought, wow, this person has just done so much to help 
help out. Love for you to nominate them. 770CHQR.ca. Just scroll down a little bit to the contest tab. Go mm-hmm. in there and you can nominate the person, group, whoever it is from a kid who draws with chalk to a, you know, a whole family or a group that's doing something special. We want to hear about them all. And I think maybe some of these stories will change because when we first kicked it off, we were completely under kind of lockdown without a lack of a better term. Now things are starting to opening up. So the role of the community champion might change a bit, but the spirit is still there. So yes, as you mentioned, 770CHQR.ca to give some recognition, well-deserved recognition on the morning news. Congratulations to the Cron family. 811 on the morning news. A new study has found over 6,600 right-wing extremist channels, pages and accounts on social media linked to Canadians, which have reached more than 11 million users globally. We're joined by senior ISD, that's the Institute for Strategic Dialogue Researcher and lead author on the study, Jacob Davey. Good morning to you, Jacob. Good morning to you. I'm, I'm just wondering here, because the number, when we read 6,600, shocked me. Within your research, did you find that uh, maybe not just Canadians, but globally, people were shocked that this number would be so high? Because we're Canadians. Uh, we're, you know, uh, straight and narrow uh, type people that don't want to harm others. This number coming out of our country, I found it shocking. So that was exactly what we wanted to find out in this study, really, is um, how big is this problem in Canada Globally, we've seen a major surge in right-wing extremism in recent years, and this is really closely linked to how people talk on social media. So we identified this sort of wide range of accounts across different social media platforms, so Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and also fringe places like 4chan, which are famous hubs for extremists. What we actually found when we compare Canada is, is, is it's really up there uh, in comparison to other countries. So... After the United States and the United Kingdom, Canadians were the third largest user of 4chan's politically incorrect board. And when you take into account the populations of these countries, Canada actually becomes um, proportionally a larger user of these platforms, which really suggests that there, there, there is an issue here. Wow. So can you define for us, Jacob, right-wing extremist channel? What does that mean specifically? Okay, so... When we think about right-wing extremism, what we talk about is a, a loose movement essentially characterized by racially, ethnically, or sexually defined nationalism, uh, which is often framed in terms of white power and is grounded in really xenophobic and exclusionary understandings of minority communities. And so when we talk about an online channel, what we really look for is um, a Facebook page, a Facebook group, or a Twitter account or YouTube channel where this exclusionary, racist, and hateful uh, ideology is broadcast from. So could it be a case that the reason that uh, many of us are shocked that the numbers are so high in Canada, the reason uh, that the folks and the organizers behind these websites choose Canada, kind of a wolf in sheep's clothing, and this might be the perfect place to to set something like this up? Um, I, 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 it, it, that's an interesting point which you raise. I, I wouldn't necessarily say that that could be the case, that this is a sort of false operation. When, when we looked into these, we found really strong evidence that actually uh, these were being run from Canada, these were being run by Canadians, um, and we're working with a research team based in Ontario, Ontario Tech University, who are looking at this on the ground as well. 
And what they're finding through their studies is actually this is an issue which is growing in Canada. Um, internationally, and I'm from the United Kingdom, Canada does have this reputation as a, a nice, inclusive country. But um, from the research, we're finding that there is this um, very present and indeed potentially growing um, uh, section of, of Canadian society who are hateful, who are racist, who want to make Canada an inhospitable place to minority groups. So we're not as squeaky clean as we think we are, obviously. And, and Jacob, within this study, you also seem to have identified five subgroups. Can you explain that to us? Yes, certainly. So when we think about right-wing extremism, obviously I said it's quite a broad group. So what we sought to do here was to try and uh, subdivide these into uh, different different categories. So we found um, ethno-nationalists. Now, these are people who believe that the race... Uh, that, that race and nationality should be tied up. Essentially, that Canada should be um, a place primarily for white people. We then looked into anti-Muslim activists. So this is a growing movement of people who primarily mobilise um, against the Muslim community, who promote hateful ideology towards Muslims. Um, we then found uh, militia groups, so armed groups who follow similar who follow a similar pro, uh, process to some groups in the U.S. who present themselves as anti-government and really see see themselves as sort of an alternative military, if you like. Um, then the manosphere. So this is um, a sort of deeply misogynistic subsect, which would include groups such as incels, involuntary celibates, um, and then finally white supremacists people who believe that white people are superior at an ethnic level to non-white people. And we found that these groups operate in slightly different ways. So actually, ethno-nationalists were the largest community we found throughout our study. But what we found is as you got onto more fringe platforms, that was where more supremacist ideology started to manifest. Thank you so much uh, for your time. It's uh, an incredible amount within your study, so we appreciate the time it took to com- uh, compile it all. Thanks, Jacob. Thank you very much, and good morning. That is Jacob Davey, a senior ISD researcher and a lead author on the study. It's 817, time for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman, just one traffic light from the mountains. Defensiveness, quite a common barrier to overcoming racism. Learning to recognize that universal tendency in ourselves can help us make progress, though. So with some tips on how to speak someone in, to someone in your life about their anti-black racism and in turn their defensiveness, we're joined this morning by psychologist Dr. Taslim Alani Vergi. Good morning, doctor. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Okay, so, you know, when people are defensive about this topic, this conversation, it can be a difficult one. Is is the defensiveness, is it because they realize that they are um, perhaps being racist or is it because they honestly don't believe they are? It can be a bit of both. Often when we're reacting defensively, we're really trying to protect ourselves. And so whether we're protecting ourselves from uh, feeling as though we're not good enough, feeling like our self-worth is being threatened, uh, we may have the awareness that the person is in fact true, or we may not, but the, the reality is anything that comes to us as a threat, we're more likely to respond defensively to it. 
Doctor, I, I think that, the, you know, one of the first reactions could be we don't want hateful people in our lives. And if we've seen it on social media, we can delete them or block them. But I would think that this could be an issue with that longstanding neighbor who's not moving anytime soon with the coworker at your job or maybe a family member. Is that the type of, uh, you know, conversation we're talking about uh, with somebody who isn't going anywhere anytime soon? We're going to see that defensiveness with really a whole lot of people, even those who strongly do believe that they're not racist. The reality is that so many of us, in fact, all of us have prejudice tendencies, and we may not necessarily be that comfortable with exploring it within ourselves, or we may not necessarily have had to because of the privilege with which we live. And so it's not necessarily just that neighbor, that family member who's going to stand firmly to their beliefs, but it's also the people we love and who we believe to actually be great people who are open-minded. And it's too bad because that defensiveness can really shut down them hearing what could potentially come afterwards and you know why someone feels that what they uh, you know someone said or how they behaved might be racist. So as soon as you start to defend you don't hear anything else, right? Exactly. Our, Our guard goes right up and we're not open to hearing the feedback so that we can't have the opportunity to learn. And I understand there are almost two different paths here. Those people who don't understand that their views are off point and uh, incorrect uh, for, for who we are as a society, and those who are blatantly unwilling to listen, period. And I guess you have to decide which is which. Definitely. So one of those, how, would, how, would you, how do you determine these things? I guess this is the conversation, opening up a conversation. How would you start a conversation like that? Just, hey, have you read the headlines? Have you heard about these protests? So this may be one way to have the conversation is by bringing it up in the news. But often these conversations happen because we feel slighted by something or we've observed someone make some sort of comment. And so it's actually the, the person who may have the defensive reaction that is initiating that conversation, which then triggers us to respond, to recognize that the person is perhaps making some sort of racist or prejudicial comment, um, therefore triggering a reaction of defensiveness. So is it more, you know, that maybe when we're having this conversation with someone or trying to, you know, initiate the conversation, we focus on the impact of their words, not perhaps the intent behind them? Definitely. When we make comments about a person's intention, number one, we can never actually know what the person's intention was. But then in that process, we're making some assumptions that can lead to a person feeling badly about um, what we're assuming they were trying to do. And so instead, by focusing on the outcome, what we allow the person to recognize is that even if they didn't really mean to offend anyone, here's how they did. And so the person might be a little bit more open to receiving that feedback. Doctor, does does it uh, uh, does age play into it? Like, for example, if somebody's, uh, you know, a senior citizen and uh, you know uh, may have had views uh, for for a number of years, it may be more difficult to have these conversations. And defensiveness is is uh, more present. I think more than age, it really depends on life life circumstances mm-hmm. and how humble and how flexible a person is willing to be. Mm-hmm. You know, um, for so many of us, we've had so many opportunities to learn how we've been wrong in our judgments and we've been open to that feedback whereas for others we are never willing to accept that we're wrong or that there are changes that need to be made so i think more than age it's really about um humility it's about open-mindedness and it's about flexibility um, and life experience 
let's face it, right now, it's a time of learning for all of us. We all have so much, particularly anybody, you know, white people who are not of color. We are learning a lot and, and most of us don't have the answers. So it's okay to ask questions and do research. But maybe if, you know, if, if you personally and I, you know, me, whoever is having a, a reaction of defensiveness, maybe it's time to stop and just think, okay, why am I reacting that way? And, and maybe how can I, how can I listen and learn better? Definitely. And I think when we can even notice that reaction happening within ourselves, then we can give ourselves the opportunity to pause. Unfortunately, so many of us are completely disconnected from how we're feeling most of the time. And so we speak before really knowing what caused us to even make that statement, which then causes a whole lot of harm. Mm -hmm. Within that statement, you you know, you're quoted as saying that if you started off with you're racist, um, then (laughs) that's not going to go far. Then, uh, you know, uh, the. reaction from somebody who's defenses, uh, defensive would say, well, I wasn't trying to be racist and, and the conversation is shut down. So, so what is the best way? And, and we hear this as uh, parents with kids when you're trying to get an answer on how their school day was. You can't just say, was, how was your day? Uh, you have to you know, expand the question. What's a good uh, entry question to uh, open up the conversation with somebody who might be a little defensive? So even being able to, to acknowledge what was said and ask about why they made that statement. Mm-hmm. So hey, I noticed that you just made this statement about this group of people um, or what's going on in the news. It doesn't really quite jive with how I understand things. I'm wondering if you can explain it to me. Um, That gives a space for the person to actually explain how they understand it. It may be coming from a place of misinformation or of judgment or from a poor news source. And so when we can understand where that information is coming from, we can perhaps provide a different perspective on it that allows for some dialogue and some exchange and hopefully some growth in the process. Hopefully for everybody, right? Yeah, and that's the thing. Don't get in someone's face. Have have a conversation about it and maybe you learn something yourself as well. I think think we we can all do that most definitely with everybody in our lives and, and better our ourselves and hopefully understand more about what's going on in the world right now. Thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate your perspective this morning. Thanks for having me. That's psychologist Dr. Taslam Alani Verji. It is it is difficult because these are some people that you have to live with. Otherwise, if they're blatantly racist or, you know, defensive That's a whole other on, ball game. online, you can just say thank you and good night. Yeah. And it's interesting because maybe not so much in our interactions, again, with that neighbor who you've uh, you lived next to for 15, 20 years, you might not have any idea what's going on in their head. And that's, you know, fine as long as they, you know, uh, take care of the dandelions on their side of the fence. But it's interesting to me on uh, social media how many things we've learned about people, over not just over the f- past few months, but over the years. Ain't that the truth. And how people feel, I don't know if, if, if there's, you know, they feel involved, like, uh, you know, they feel like they don't have to worry about a thing because it's just words on a page. We see different Almost worse aspects. sometimes, yeah, right? worse or it doesn't matter. It does matter. Your words matter no mm-hmm. matter where you see them. So, And it is a time of learning right now for all of us. And I think we need to pay attention, not just to you know what we sit and type on a keyboard, but how we speak to each other, the things we say. And maybe you know do a little investigating in the back of yourself as to your belief system and, and why you feel the way you feel. And maybe do some research and learn something new. And mm-hmm. question, we can yeah, all do it. To your point, question yourself as to why does this make me feel uncomfortable? Mm-hmm. And that's, a, that's an area of growth. So some good conversations to be had for sure. 617, it's time for helicopter traffic now. For West District by Truman, come visit the largest concrete-built condos in the city. 718 on the morning news. We've heard for years now that a sedentary lifestyle can be harmful to your overall health, and now a new study goes one step further on sedentary behavior and cancer. With the details, we're joined by Dr. Ted Jablonski. Good morning to you, Dr. J. Good morning. 
Well, this study uh, sounds quite focused. Uh, quite focused. Can you tell us about the findings? So this is really interesting because, uh, as you said in the lead on, uh, we've known about cardiovascular benefit of exercise forever. and We have an, a multitude of studies. So this was an American study that recruited uh, 30,000 people over many, many years. And a, uh, an arm of that study looked at uh, just pure exercise versus very sedentary uh, behavior. So they had a little device on these people to look at how active they were. If somebody was truly sedentary, meaning they did less than 30 minutes of even light activity, they were in one category, then folks who did at least 30 minutes of light activity, then people who did 30 minutes or more of more moderate, uh, which would be more cycling, jogging, etc. And the cancer rates were quite different. So if you did nothing, your rate uh, of cancer was much higher than light activity, where you, in theory you gained at least uh, approximately 10% improvement, and moderate exercise up to 30% improved cancer rates across mm. the board. So it depends, uh, glass half empty, glass half full. Glass half full, if you exercise, you're uh, decreasing your risk of cancer, which is fantastic. If you sit on your butt and do absolutely nothing, <laughs> your rate of cancer is up to 82% higher than somebody who's very active. That's, that's amazing data. That is huge. US. So, Dr. Jane, yeah. what, what's the link then? Is it is it like heart health, you know, that's helping cancer? What, what is it? It's probably more in the immune system. So we okay. do know we all have a, a natural immune system that can uh, uh, see cancer and fight it off, but it has to be healthy to do that. So I believe this is sort of the link of this. If you have an unhealthy immune system, it doesn't read those cancer cells. Those cancer cells are uh, allowed to grow sort of under, not under surveillance. But if I'm active, I am more likely to have that, that stronger immune system, which is able to sense mm -hmm. and kill off those cancer cells. Now that's speculation. This study uh, didn't answer that question. Um, and you can make a lot of other potential theories, but that's probably the most plausible of the bunch. Well, Dr. J, you take uh, information from a study like this. I'm sure you want to implement it in your practice. But as you mentioned, from people who just sit uh, for that 30 minutes a day and don't move, uh, it's easy to say, get out, hit the gym, do some cardio, hit the treadmill, maybe some light weights, whatever it might be. Uh, but their uh, pattern has been to sit. So, so what do you tell your clients? Because you can't just flip the switch. You want to integrate them. How do you get them started? So you can get started, even, even uh, somebody in office job, very sedentary, you're working at home in COVID, just, not, just get up, get out of your chair, walk around, you have to do something. And again, um, uh, you don't need a gym membership. It doesn't need to be summer, <laughs> but these are the perfect scenario right now, mm -hmm. right? It's just get out the door and go for a walk uh, around the block, uh, you know, take a break. This is good for your mental health also. Right. So particularly uh, at these times, there's no reason why we have to sit nonstop and do nothing. We can easily get out and get moving. And that's how you get started. Right. Once you get into the groove or that starts to be getting good, then you get uh, more and more aggressive uh, for people who are already doing, uh, you know, a bit of a walk and maybe a stroll. You can go a little bit quicker, go mm -hmm. a little bit longer. You extend it out. So no matter where you are in that continuum, you can always just push it a little bit more. Well, those are incredible findings. I mean, we know, you know, getting up and moving is so good for so many different things, but to know that this might actually help fight off cancer as well, it's a, a great kick in the butt, isn't it, to, to do something, maybe get the kids or the grandkids to keep you accountable or a neighbor or a friend, because when you have somebody else doing it with you, it's sure easier. 
Oh, absolutely. And there's, uh, you know, it's wonderful to see that COVID, COVID, COVID. So we're now in the summer, but to see families walking around, I love it. It's just wonderful. Uh, Makes me feel so good that people are getting out there and yeah, doing it as a family unit. That's safe, right? If we all are okay, we're all keeping our uh, distance from other families or being careful with that. There's no reason why we can't be outside, can't be socializing, right? Actually enjoying each other and exercising at the same time. Thank you so much for your time this morning, Dr. Okay, J. Okay, you betcha. That is Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician. Seven forty-nine. TD Bank launching its third annual TD Ready Challenge, making ten million dollars in grants available for charities and not for profits. Joining us with details of the program is Naki As. Osute and uh, is Associate Vice President of Social Impact in Canada with the TD Bank Group. Good morning, Naki. Good morning. Thanks Thanks. so much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. This is huge. A lot of money available. And boy, not-for-profits and charities, they've been hit hard during this pandemic. So explain the program to us. They sure have, and we're grateful to have this program in place. We launched the TD Ready Challenge in 2018 as an opportunity to surface and support innovative ideas that address challenging issues facing society today. So in light of what's happening with COVID-19, we decided to, to switch our program from 10 $1 million grants to multiple grants ranging from $250,000 Canadian to about a million dollars per grant, focusing on, yeah, focusing on initiatives that will help address the, the impacts of COVID-19 on communities that have been disproportionately impacted more heavily. And we know that COVID-19 has really exposed a lot of the entrenched uh, inequities and social issues, whether they be related to fi- financial security or, or social isolation and, and the connection of communities, or even, or, or even and especially issues pertaining to health and the environment. Naki, can you give us some examples of the organizations that are going to be helped by these funds or those who have applied at this point? Well, the, the, the call for applications launched uh, just last week, so we expect to receive a number of them from across the country and, in fact, across North America. And, and I suspect that they'll come from all corners of the not-for-profits and charitable sectors. They might be health organizations. They might be community organizations. They might be colleges, colleges or universities. Um, I think innovation comes from all kinds of places. So if folks are listening, they're from the not-for-profit world, and they're thinking, boy, this could help us a lot. How do they apply? What do they need to do? They'll, they'll visit the, the TD website. So if they go online to td.com and, and, and search up the TD Ready Challenge, they can find all the information details on the website. And we will also host webinars to help, uh, to help interested applicants better understand what we're looking for through the challenge. And so applicants are welcome to do that as well. Does it have to be a recognized registered charity or can it be a volunteer organization within a community? Are there parameters set there? That's a great question. No, they do. We are only able to support registered not-for-profits or charities. Okay. And when's the deadline? It is August 13th. August 13th. Okay. So so we'll be looking for applications up until that point. And uh, have you had any feedback at this point in time? Just people thinking, wow, this is, I mean, that's huge. That's, that there's a lot of big grants available this time around. Yeah. Yeah. No, the feedback has been phenomenal. There's, there's, um, everything that we've heard so far affirms that this was the right decision for the organization. There are so many organizations who are looking to, to do this very thing to really address long-term impacts of COVID-19. 
Well, thanks for letting us know about it. We really appreciate your time this morning, Naki. Thank you so much. And, and all the best to all the not-for-profits who apply. You bet. Uh, that is Naki Osute, and of course, she's Associate Vice President, Social Impact Canada with the TD Bank Group. If you want to hop online to see if you are your group are eligible, you go to www.td.com slash readychallenge. 708 on the morning news. A busy few days south of the border with Donald Trump's much-talked-about rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma. COVID-19 numbers continuing to rise in several states and the release of a new book that takes aim at the president. With details, we're joined by Reggie Cicchini, Global News Ottawa correspondent. Good morning to you, Reggie. Good morning. Where to start? Uh, We'll start with the rally. Uh, The rally that we were told would be packed to the rafters. I believe they also had a a stage outside of the arena uh, for overflow. It, it, It sort of fizzled, didn't it? Yeah, I did. Look, the Trump campaign and the president himself kind of ginned up this event to say that there was going to be, you know, 100,000 people that would show up, that they had secured a million requests for tickets. And at the end of the day, that stadium that held 19,000 people or that holds 19,000 people was just about a third full uh, with uh, with uh, event staff saying that 6,200 people were in attendance. The president is trying to say it was double that number. But you're right. None of the outdoor space was needed. Half of the seats, if not more, were empty on the inside and it left for an incredibly frustrated and angry president by the end of the weekend. So Reggie, does it look like it was just the tone deaf timing and location or is it that these kids really pulled a fast one on the president and his people? I mean, it's hard to tell what this one, you know, the, the, this TikTok troll is kind of being uh, used as a possibility for the number of people who didn't show up for this event. You know, we've seen the videos, we've seen the conversations, we've seen the pushback from within the Trump administration and the Trump campaign. Uh, but at the end of the day as well, you're right. This was a rally that uh, was facing pushback from uh, uh, from people inside of Tulsa, from the health department and from a growing number of people within the Republican Party simply saying it may be too soon to hold these rallies. And I think the president may have assumed uh, that there was more of a of a of a want to get together with him in the middle of a crisis. Uh, And you could see that the president barely paid attention to that crisis when he was in the room. So it is a bit of tone deafness and a bit of blindness to the situation. Ahead of the rally, there were concerns that, you know, having that many people indoors could be a COVID-19 risk. So remains to be seen with over 6,000 people, if that will be in the next uh, couple of weeks. But in the meantime, the numbers continue to grow in several uh, U.S. states when it comes to cases, don't they? They do. Uh, you know, there is fear that this second wave may come later on this year. We're actually hearing that now from people inside the White House. Uh, you know, given the fact that the vice president penned an op-ed just last week that said the talk of a second wave was overblown and this was being, you know, something that was being trumped up by the media. But the numbers show that not only is a second wave possible, but the first wave still hasn't, hasn't really gone anywhere. Florida posting 13 days of 1,000 or more cases. That is an incredible number to watch. Uh, Arizona is quickly running out of ICU beds. Their healthcare system is being strained. And right now in the United States, more than half of the states are seeing an increase of at least 50%. And seven of those states are seeing an increase week over week by more than 100% when it comes to case numbers. And obviously, I mean, that, that could have played a huge role in the in the rally at the weekend of people just not willing to go and be in that much of a, you know, close quarters with other people. So for sure, all of these things combining uh, really to unhinge the president, no doubt, with what he was expecting. Let's talk about the book. That book is supposed to be coming out tomorrow. And that one is, is could that really give a, a bit of a blow to Trump's campaign as he moves towards the election? 
I mean, it's possible. You know, this book is not really giving us any kind of new uh, uh, aha moment. These are rumors that we've heard for the last several months. These are uh, um, allegations against the president that are simply falling in line with the comments and echoes that we've heard from books prior from people who used to be in this administration as well. It's just giving a better picture as to the chaos that we can see with our own eyes, but that we're also hearing reports of. You know, it could make some waves with some voters going forward, but John Bolton was a, uh, a controversial figure inside the White House to begin with, and there are members of the Republican administration who uh, who don't actually follow and like John Bolton, so this could kind of push some Republicans to kind of stay away from him and stay with the president, but the allegations inside the book, some of them are slightly damning. Some of them show that the president may not be up for the job that he is in right now, uh, and you can imagine the Democrats are actually going to do what they can to ensure that they grab on to the information in this book and they push it forward. Mm. You don't need to get that phone, do you, Reggie, in the background? <laughs> no, no, no. Okay, good. I want to talk about uh, you know, further to, uh, you know, the, the book is one part, uh, but uh, President Donald Trump coming out, and this was apparently on record, saying that he was uh, uh, going to suggest that the testing numbers were lowered because then the numbers of actual cases would be less uh, damning. Can you confirm that? Well, look, the president's conversations and the way that the president talks about coronavirus serve to uh, make sure that his base follows along with him and serves as a uh, an ability to ensure that the buck can be passed somewhere else. When the president made these comments about testing uh, by saying that he told his people to slow down testing, he's he's saying it was a the White House is saying it was a joke. But this is what we've seen time and time again. When the president makes a controversial statement, somebody in the campaign, somebody in the White House has to walk it back and say, no, 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 it was just a joke. What the president said was a damaging sentence what the president's saying when it comes to testing is also factually incorrect the more you test the more that you don't uh, the more your numbers don't actually go up healthcare experts have said the more you test the more you're able to isolate people pull them out of the general population and your positive cases will go down testing has been an issue from the get-go and the president is simply backing himself into a corner uh, by having people come after him to say testing was rolled out poorly across the country and you're now fully admitting that the test has been that the testing infrastructure Structure uh, has simply been, uh, you know, a failure at best. Reggie, any word from Joe Biden's camp as to who he might choose as a running mate heading towards the election? It's honestly still up in the air, uh, and we are quickly running out of time with the convention set to take place uh, in about 60 days uh, towards the end of August, this virtual convention. Uh, there are still you know, uh, people being weeded out from the bottom of the list now that we've seen Amy Klobuchar drop off that list saying that the vice president uh, should use uh, or should at least add somebody to the ticket who is a person of color. There is still uh, kind of a growing momentum rallying behind Kamala Harris. There is also a growing momentum uh, that's rallying behind someone like Keisha Lance Bottoms, the mayor of Atlanta as well as potentially Stacey Abrams, potentially uh, Val Demings from Florida, potentially Illinois Senator Tammy Duckworth. There is a, a big list still. It's simply still they're trying to get through that vetting process, but he is rapidly running out of time to make that decision and get people who would support his uh, running mate to be standing behind him as well. We've uh, got a text in here that says Bi uh, Biden had a rally as well on the weekend uh, that attracted tens of people. I think they're being a little tongue-in-cheek. <laughs> um, uh, what, can you tell us about Biden's rally over the weekend? Well, so, I mean, Biden's rallies are essentially just, you know, they're acting the way that a presidential rally uh, should in a campaign. He's trying to talk about, uh, you know, the president who's sitting right now, but he's also trying to talk about policies and platforms that aren't working that he would work with. Uh, but it's also worth pointing out that while he is being made fun of for, you know, the tens of people that showed up, he was actually showing that, look, the CDC is recommending that people social distance. So he had circles 
on the ground. He had people sitting inside circles like we've seen painted in parks. And he's trying to get this message across that this is what it looks like to be a leader. You can't have a leader that jams 20,000 people into a room and then ignores that coronavirus is real. He's trying to say, look, I'm doing what I can to keep people safe. This is why you should pay more attention to me going towards November, because I can ensure that Americans will be safe if we uh, if he's elected into office, essentially. Uh, The book launch tomorrow, obviously one of the big things. Anything else happening south of the border, Reggie, we need to be aware of this week? I would watch for President Trump's travels tomorrow to Arizona. A, it's already a hot spot, so he's putting himself potentially in the line of fire when it comes to coronavirus, notably because of his advanced age, uh, and he does have health problems. Uh, but he's also heading down to the wall uh, with Mexico tomorrow, where he's going to try to drum up some political support by saying that there's more than 100 miles of new wall that's been built. Much of that has simply just been refurbished fence. But he's going to have a political rally and a political photo op that's going to try to change the picture from coronavirus back towards border safety as we head towards November. Thanks for your time this morning, Reggie. Thank you. That is Reggie Cicchini, Global News Washington correspondent. It's coming up on 717. Time for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman. Life happens at hellowestdistrict.com.